we continue the second part of Joseph and his brothers from Patriarchs and Prophets. We see the end of Jacob's life. We see the forgiveness of Joseph extending to his brothers. And we also see the parallel of the life of Christ with that of Joseph. Patriarchs and Prophets, Chapter 21, Joseph and His Brothers, Part 2. Joseph took five of his brothers to present to Pharaoh and received from him the grant of land for their future home. Gratitude to his prime minister would have led the monarch to honor them with appointments to offices of state. But Joseph, true to the worship of Jehovah, sought to save his brothers from the temptations to which they would be exposed at a heathen court. Therefore he counseled them, when questioned by the king, to tell him frankly their occupation. The sons of Jacob followed this counsel, being careful also to state that they had come to sojourn in the land, not to become permanent dwellers there thus reserving the right to depart if they chose. The king assigned them a home, as offered, in the best of the land, the country of Goshen. Not long after their arrival, Joseph brought his father also to be presented to the king. The patriarch was a stranger in royal courts, but amid the sublime scenes of nature, he had communed with a mightier monarch, and now, in conscious superiority, he raised his hands and blessed Pharaoh. In his first greeting to Joseph, Jacob had spoken as if, with this joyful ending to his long anxiety and sorrow, he was ready to die. But seventeen years were yet to be granted him in the peaceful retirement of Goshen. These years were in happy contrast to those that had preceded them. He saw in his sons evidence of true repentance. He saw his family surrounded by all the conditions needful for the development of a great nation, and his faith grasped the sure promise of their future establishment in Canaan. He himself was surrounded with every token of love and favor that the prime minister of Egypt could bestow. And happy in the society of his long-lost son, he passed down gently and peacefully to the grave. As he felt death approaching, he sent for Joseph, still holding fast the promise of God, respecting the possession of Canaan. He said, Bury me not, I pray you, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. Joseph promised to do so, but Jacob was not satisfied. He exacted a solemn oath to lay him beside his fathers in the cave of Machpelah. Another important matter demanded attention. The sons of Joseph were to be formally instated among the children of Israel. Joseph, coming for a last interview with his father, brought with him Ephraim and Manasseh. These youths were connected, through their mother, with the highest order of the Egyptian priesthood, and the position of their father opened to them the avenues to wealth and distinction should they choose to connect themselves with the Egyptians. It was Joseph's desire, however, that they should unite with their own people. 
he manifested his faith in the covenant promise in behalf of his sons renouncing all the honors that the court of Egypt offered for a place among the despised shepherd tribes to whom had been entrusted the oracles of God. Said Jacob, Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. They were to be adopted as his own, and to become the heads of separate tribes. Thus one of the birthright privileges which Reuben had forfeited was to fall to Joseph, a double portion in Israel. Jacob's eyes were dim with age, and he had not been aware of the presence of the young men. But now, catching the outline of their forms, he said, Who are these? On being told, he added, Bring them, I pray you, unto me and I will bless them. As they came nearer, the patriarch embraced and kissed them, solemnly laying his hands upon their heads in benediction. Thus he uttered the prayer, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. There was no spirit of self-dependence no reliance upon human power or cunning now. God had been his preserver and support. There was no complaint of the evil days in the past. Its trials and sorrows were no longer regarded as things that were against him. Memory recalled only his mercy and loving kindness, who had been with him throughout his pilgrimage. The blessing ended. Jacob gave his son the assurance, leaving for the generations to come, through long years of bondage and sorrow, this testimony to his faith. Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. At the last, all the sons of Jacob were gathered about his dying bed. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and hear, you sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Often and anxiously he had thought of their future, and had endeavored to picture to himself the history of the different tribes. Now as his children waited to receive his last blessing, the spirit of inspiration rested upon him, and before him, in prophetic vision, the future of his descendants was unfolded. One after another, the names of his sons were mentioned, the character of each was described, and the future history of the tribe was briefly foretold. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Thus the father pictured what should have been the position of Reuben as the firstborn son. But his grievous sin at Edar had made him unworthy of the birthright blessing. Jacob continued, Unstable as water, you shall not excel. The priesthood was appointed to Levi, the kingdom and the messianic promise to Judah, and the double portion of the inheritance to Joseph. 
The tribe of Reuben never rose to any eminence in Israel. It was not so numerous as Judah, Joseph, or Dan, and was among the first that were carried into captivity. Next in age to Reuben were Simeon and Levi. They had been united in their cruelty toward the Shechemites, and they had also been the most guilty in the selling of Joseph. Concerning them, it was declared, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. At the numbering of Israel, just before their entrance to Canaan, Simeon was the smallest tribe. Moses, in his last blessing, made no reference to Simeon. In the settlement of Canaan, this tribe had only a small portion of Judah's lot, and such families, as afterward became powerful, formed different colonies and settled in territory outside the borders of the Holy Land. Levi also received no inheritance except 48 cities scattered in different parts of the land. In the case of this tribe, however, their fidelity to Jehovah when the other tribes apostatized secured their appointment to the sacred service of the sanctuary, and thus the curse was changed into a blessing. The crowning blessings of the birthright were transferred to Judah. The significance of the name, which denotes praise, is unfolded in the prophetic history of this tribe. Judah, you are he whom your brethren shall praise. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The lion, king of the forest, is a fitting symbol of this tribe, from which came David and the son of David, Shiloh, the true lion of the tribe of Judah, to whom all powers shall finally bow and all nations render homage. For most of his children, Jacob foretold a prosperous future. At last, the name of Joseph was reached, and the father's heart overflowed as he invoked blessings upon the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Even by the God of your father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors. Unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Jacob had ever been a man of deep and ardent affection. His love for his sons was strong and tender, 
and his dying testimony to them was not the utterance of partiality or resentment. He had forgiven them all, and he loved them to the last. His paternal tenderness would have found expression only in words of encouragement and hope. But the power of God rested upon him, and under the influence of inspiration, he was constrained to declare the truth, however painful. The last blessings pronounced, Jacob repeated the charge concerning his burial place. I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. Thus the last act of his life was to manifest his faith in God's promise. Jacob's last years brought an evening of tranquility and repose after a troubled and weary day. Clouds had gathered dark above his path, yet his sun set clear, and the radiance of heaven illumined his parting hours, says the scripture, at evening time it shall be light, Zechariah 14, 7, quoted, mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace, Psalm 37, 37, quoted, Jacob had sinned, and had deeply suffered. Many years of toil, care, and sorrow had been his since the day when his great sin caused him to flee from his father's tents, a homeless fugitive separated from his mother, whom he never saw again, laboring seven years for her whom he loved, only to be basely cheated, toiling twenty years in the service of a covetous and grasping kinsman, seeing his wealth increasing and sons rising around him, but finding little joy in the contentious and divided household, distressed by his daughter's shame, by her brother's revenge, by the death of Rachel, by the unnatural crime of Reuben, by Judah's sin, by the cruel deception and malice practiced toward Joseph. How long and dark is the catalog of evils spread out to view. Again and again he had reaped the fruit of that first wrong deed. Over and over he saw repeated among his sons the sins of which he himself had been guilty. But bitter as had been the discipline, it had accomplished its work. The chastening, though grievous, had yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12:11 quoted. Inspiration faithfully records the faults of good men. Those who were distinguished by the favor of God, Indeed, their faults are more fully presented than their virtues. This has been a subject of wonder to many, and has given the infidel occasion to scoff at the Bible. But it is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of Scripture, that facts are not glossed over, nor the sins of its chief character suppressed. The minds of men are so subject to prejudice that it is not possible for human histories to be absolutely impartial. Had the Bible been written by uninspired persons, it would no doubt have presented the character of its honored men in a more flattering light. But as it is, we have a correct record of their experiences. Men whom God favored and to whom he entrusted great responsibilities were sometimes overcome by temptation and committed sin, even as we at the present day strive, waver, and frequently fall into error. Their lives, with all their faults and follies, are open before us, both for our encouragement and warning. If they had been represented as without fault, 
we, with our sinful nature, might despair at our own mistakes and failures. But seeing where others struggle through discouragements like our own, where they fell under temptation as we have done, and yet took heart again and conquered through the grace of God, we are encouraged in our striving after righteousness. As they, though sometimes beaten back, recovered their ground and were blessed of God, so we too may be overcomers in the strength of Jesus. On the other hand, the record of their lives may serve as a warning to us. It shows that God will by no means clear the guilty. He sees sin in his most favored ones, and he deals with it in them even more strictly than in those who have less light and responsibility. After the burial of Jacob, fear again filled the hearts of Joseph's brothers. Notwithstanding his kindness toward them, conscious guilt made them distrustful and suspicious. It might be that he had but delayed his revenge out of regard to their father, and that he would now visit upon them the long-deferred punishment for their crime. They dared not appear before him in person, but sent a message. Your father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray you now, the trespass of your brethren and their sin, for they did unto you evil. And now, we pray you, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. This message affected Joseph to tears, and, encouraged by this, his brothers came and fell down before him with the words, Behold, we be your servants. Joseph's love for his brothers was deep and unselfish, and he was pained at the thought that they could regard him as cherishing a spirit of revenge toward them. Fear not, he said, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. The life of Joseph illustrates the life of Christ. It was envy that moved the brothers of Joseph to sell him as a slave. They hoped to prevent him from becoming greater than themselves. And when he was carried to Egypt, they flattered themselves that they were to be no more troubled with his dreams that they had removed all possibility of their fulfillment. But their own course was overruled by God to bring about the very event that they designed to hinder. So the Jewish priests and elders were jealous of Christ, fearing that he would attract the attention of the people from them. They put him to death to prevent him from becoming king. But they were thus bringing about this very result. Joseph, through his bondage in Egypt, became a savior to his father's family. Yet this fact did not lessen the guilt of his brothers. So the crucifixion of Christ by his enemies made him the redeemer of mankind, the savior of the fallen race, and ruler over the whole world. But the crime of his murderers was just as heinous as though God's providential hand had not controlled events for his own glory and the good of men. As Joseph was sold to the heathen by his own brothers, so Christ was sold to his bitterest enemies by one of his disciples. Joseph was falsely accused and thrust into prison because of his virtue. So Christ was despised and rejected because his righteous, self-denying life was a rebuke to sin. And though guilty of no wrong, 
he was condemned upon the testimony of false witnesses. And Joseph's patience and meekness under injustice and oppression, his ready forgiveness and noble benevolence toward his unnatural brothers, represent the Savior's uncomplaining endurance of the malice and abuse of wicked men, and his forgiveness not only of his murderers, but of all who have come to him, confessing their sins and seeking pardon. Joseph outlived his father 54 years. He lived to see Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mechir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. He witnessed the increase and prosperity of his people, and through all the years his faith in God's restoration of Israel to the land of promise was unshaken. When he saw that his end was near, he summoned his kinsmen about him. Honored as he had been in the land of the pharaohs, Egypt was to him but the place of his exile. His last act was to signify that his lot was cast with Israel. His last words were, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he took a solemn oath of the children of Israel that they would carry up his bones with them to the land of Canaan. So Joseph died, being an hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And through the centuries of toil which followed, that coffin, a reminder of the dying words of Joseph, testified to Israel that they were only sojourners in Egypt, and bade them keep their hopes fixed upon the land of promise, for the time of deliverance would surely come.